Good morning, friends. Uh, today's message is being uh, recorded in North Richland Hills, Texas. Down here for a few days, enjoying time with family. I'm going to finish up Jonah today. I'm going to title this message, You Just Can't Please Some People, and it is on Jonah chapter 4. You know, we all love happy endings and fairy tales and stories where the good guys win, the bad guys lose, the poor woman, or the poor young man wins the hand of a beautiful a maiden he's rescued. Kind of reminds me of the immortal words of Hannibal Smith on that old TV show, The A-Team, who would say at the end of a successful mission, I love it when a plan comes together. Now, so far, the plan has, has come together perfectly. God called Jonah. Jonah ran away. God sent a storm. Jonah went to sleep. The sailors throw Jonah overboard. The storm ends. The sailors worship God. God sends the great fish that swallows Jonah. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the great fish. And that's just chapter one. Eventually, uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He preaches an eight-word sermon. The whole city repents. God relents. It's the greatest revival in history. Now, you would think Jonah would be happy. But no, you just can't please somebody. Here are the first three verses of chapter four. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I'm struck by the way the New Living Translation translates verse 1. It says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Now, I would underline those words, change of plans, because that's a key to Jonah 4. Now, what change of plans are we talking about? Well, the fact is that God is no longer going to destroy Nineveh. And let's be honest here. There's a little Jonah in all of us and a lot of Jonah in most of us. I mean, Jonah's attitude has been quite clear from the beginning. I'm fine, Lord, as long as you send them straight to hell. Pull the lever, open the trapdoor, whatever you have to do, but send these people to hell. That's how Jonah felt. The fact that God showed mercy was a great evil to Jonah. That's a literal translation from the Hebrew for greatly displeased. When God shows grace to Jonah, it's a great evil. So now at last we understand why Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nineveh in the first place. Verse 2 says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now that's a reference to um, Exodus chapter 34, verses 36, verses 6 and 7. One of the greatest statements in the Old Testament about God's gracious character. Now here's the irony of this story. Jonah was fine with mercy when he received it, but he couldn't handle it when God showed mercy to Nineveh. Now, one writer I read brought the truth home this way. He said, you can you can tell you have made God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. So Jonah says, I wish I was dead. I mean, talk about a miserable, rotten, no good attitude. And this was God's man. See, the real question turns out to be, God, what are you doing going to do about Jonah? In the belly of the fish, he was about to die, and he prayed, Oh God, let me live. And now, after the greatest triumph of his life, he prays, Oh God, just let me die. Now, we can read this book and ask, God, what are you going to do about Nineveh? 
But the real question turns out to be, God, what are you going to do about Jonah? See, God knows how to deal with wicked sinners. He saves them. But what's he going to do with the smug, arrogant, anger-filled church member? I mean, that's a bigger church problem. And that's what I meant when I said there's a little Jonah in all of us and a lot of Jonah in most of us. So Jonah now leaves Nineveh, goes out east of the city. He's still hoping against hope that God will send down fire and brimstone and destroy the city. And when that happens, he'll have a front row seat to watch it happen. But God has other plans. Now, three things happen in short order, all of them caused by God. Verse 6, then the Lord provided a vine. Verse 7, God provided a worm. And in verse 8, God provided a scorching east wind. See, the vine was good because it gave Jonah shade. The worm was bad in Jonah's eyes because it chewed up the vine. The east wind was very bad in Jonah's eyes because it caused him great discomfort. Yet all of these things came from God. The same God who provided the vine also sent the worm and the scorching wind. The real question boils down to this. Will Jonah be happy with God only when God makes him happy? What will he do when God doesn't live up to his expectations? Now, this little drama raises a fascinating question that the book itself doesn't really answer. Did Jonah ever really repent? Now, the first time God calls in Jonah 1, he runs away. The second time God calls Jonah 3, he obeys, so the answer is maybe yes, if we stop reading at the end of chapter 3. But if we continue to the end of chapter 4, the answer becomes maybe no, because there isn't the slightest statement in the final chapter that shows any hint of repentance. Maybe the answer is yes and no. I mean, God never said, go and have a good attitude. He just said, go and preach to Nineveh. That leads me to kind of a frightening and solemn conclusion. It is perfectly possible to obey God with a rotten attitude. Did you get that? Maybe it's perfectly possible to obey God with a rotten attitude. That, in fact, seems to describe Jonah from the beginning at the end. At no point does he seem to be willing to obey God out of joy in the Lord and with compassion for the lost. Even in the belly of the fish, when he prays the great prayer in chapter 2, it's as if God has him backed into a corner, so he turns his heart to God because he has no other choice. Now, while I admit that's a very human thing to do, it doesn't speak very positively about his love for the Lord. And I, as I pondered this, I remembered some of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, that some preach Christ out of selfish ambition and false motives. Now, whatever that may mean, we know that sort of preaching can't be a good thing, but it doesn't seem to bother Paul too much. He's just glad that Christ is being preached. Now, I conclude from this that we will sometimes, and maybe often, serve Jesus with motives that are far from pure. I remember being shocked many years ago when I heard a pastor say that he had rarely done anything in his life without mixed motives. Now, I was a young man then, and not very wise in the way of human nature. But I now see that the pastor was confessing an obvious truth. This side of heaven, even our best deeds and noblest acts will be tainted with self-interest. Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite authors, has said, we must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior. Now, we can say it another way. Instead of patting ourselves on the back for our good deeds, we should repent of the pride we take in doing those good deeds in the first place because without God, we would never do any good at all. I simply mean that even our best deeds are tainted by sin. 
It is surprisingly easy to do the right thing for the wrong reason and still be blessed. But we must not stop there because God is never satisfied with mere outward obedience. He wants us to obey from a heart with gladness and not grudgingly. He'll send a vine, a worm, and a scorching wind to reveal our inner rottenness so that our hearts might be transformed. Now, one final note on the question of Jonah's repentance. I've been pretty hard on this guy, and deservedly so, but where did this story come from? I mean, how did it end up in the Bible? And only one man knew all the details, and that man cared enough to write this story down. See, if Jonah was this honest about his own spiritual journey, uh, perhaps the very existence of the book means that he did at least repent of his stinky attitude toward God and toward the people God loves. And since the book ends with a question, that means the final response must come not from the prophet, but from you and me. Verse 11 says, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about, about that great city? So Jonah's story ends not with a statement, but with a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. God is concerned about that great city, and therefore Jonah should be concerned too. But ending in a question and not in a declaration, the book leaves the issue hanging in the air. Will we have God's heart for the Ninevehs of our world, or will we hate them as Jonah hated the city of Nineveh? I mean, this this story speaks to all of us who would rather not get involved in this world. And let's be honest here, we'd all rather be comfy and cozy and keep it nice and neat inside the four walls of our own church. Now, there's another way of looking at this whole issue. Jonah has two problems. On the surface, his problem is that he has no heart for the people of Nineveh. But his real problem is deeper. He has no room for a God who does. Jonah's real problem is God. His God is too small, and that's why his heart is too small. It's interesting, isn't it, that God's greatest problem is not with the wicked people of Nineveh. The moment they heard the message, they believed it. Now, yes, they were really evil people. There's no doubt about that. But God has no problem with them. It's a sobering thought that in the book of Jonah, the pagans were quicker to believe than this man of God. That's true of the pagan sailors in chapter 1 and the people of Nineveh in chapter 3. Now, we sometimes say, in kind of a dismissive way, that the whole world is going to hell. As a matter of fact, that's true. The whole world is going to hell, but that's not the problem. The problem with the world is not, is not the world. The problem with the world is the church. The problem is not the sinful excess of the world that we see all around us. The problem is that we're running the other way so we don't have to love the world that God loves. The problem is not the gross evil that we are so quickly to condemn. The problem is that we're not praying for the people who live in the wickedness we say we hate. Their sin has made them odious to us so we don't even bother to pray for them. See, God's greatest problem is not the sinner out there. His greatest problem is the saint in the four walls of a church more often than not. See, we're a lot like Jonah than we'd like to admit. And that's why we laugh and then we squirm because there's a lot of Jonah inside most of us. Well, let me end up with three closing lessons um, to bring the truth home to our hearts. Well, first of all, God loves Nineveh. I mean, where is Nineveh today? Well, Nineveh is Philadelphia, it's Dallas, it's Chicago, it's St. Louis, Branson, Missouri. I mean, Nineveh is your neighbor next door, the one you don't like, who don't take care of their yard or make too much noise or who kids, whose kids get into trouble. I mean, Nineveh is your boss who's just a, a jerk. 
Then if it's the guy in the, the next cubicle or the woman down the hall, and such a drama queen, thinks the whole world is about her, I mean, that's your Nineveh. So you can tell you have made God in your image when it turns out that he hates the same people that you do. Well, we've said that before. And that's why, you know, sometimes we think, well, Nineveh is your ex-husband, who's really easy to understand but hard for you to love. Nineveh is your ex-wife, who you'd rather not see again. It's your Muslim neighbor and your Sikh banker and your hairdressers on her third husband, or maybe it's her fourth. I mean, who knows? You see, Nineveh is not just a place. Nineveh is a symbol for the gathering together of the people of the world. Wherever you find people, there you find Nineveh and all of its splendor and power and glory and greed and brutality and evil. It's all there, mixed together, the good with the bad, the light with the darkness. So look around. You live in Nineveh. You work in Nineveh. All your life is lived in and around that great city. Nobody can escape it. The message is clear. God still loves Nineveh. He still loves the people who make their living in the big cities. He loves the teeming thousands who work long hours each day. He loves the union workers who ply their trade in some mammoth factory in the bowels of the city. See, sometimes we see only the evil and we think, well, God must really hate this city. No, friends, God loves this city and these people. Nothing they can do can make him stop loving them. He sees all the sin, not the tiniest bit escapes his vision, but it does not, he does not turn his back on the heart of love, his heart of love. See, God still loves Nineveh. And second, God is still willing to do whatever it takes to get you to Nineveh. For Jonah, that meant spending three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish. <clears throat> so the question is, what will God have to do to get you to obey him? Our churches are filled with modern-day Jonas who have taken a holiday cruise to Tarshish. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe God has spoken to you and you've said, mm, I don't think I really want to do that. Well, if so, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is, don't worry about that great storm on the horizon. The bad news is, you better start worrying about that big fish. There's an old gospel song that includes this line, He doesn't make you go against your will. He just makes you willing to go. I mean, how true. God won't force you to go to Nineveh, but he will make your life miserable until you decide to go on your own. See, sometimes we see only the evil and think God must hate that city. But remember, friends, God loves that city and he loves those people. He just makes you willing to go. Here's the third thing. Nineveh needs you. I mean, think about this. For all its cruelty and sinful brutality, Nineveh was ready to turn to God. The people didn't know it. They weren't consciously aware of their need, and they weren't intentionally looking for God. But God, who sees all things, knew, knew that this vile city was primed and ready to turn to him. If only he could find a man, the right man, with the right message, who would dare to go there and deliver the message. So, what will God have to do to get you to obey him? Jonah was God's man for Nineveh. The world is full of Ninevehs today, and God's still looking for somebody to go there. I mean, Nineveh is, first of all, a literal city. It also stands for all the cities of this world. But Nineveh is even more personal than that. It stands for the place that only you can go, that person only you can reach, that opportunity that only you can fill. So you've got a Nineveh in your life right now. I'm pretty sure of it. It might be a friend where you work. It might be the group you hang around with after school. It might be your neighbors down the street might be a woman in an organization that you belong to, the guys in your bowling team, and who knows. Your Nineveh might even be your husband or wife or even your grown-up kids. Your Nineveh might be someone you love whose behavior has provoked you to the point of anger and bitterness. Your Nineveh might be a new job in a new city or a home on a new street. 
See, Nineveh ultimately stands for any part of the will of God that you're afraid to face. You're afraid to go, but God wants you there. You're afraid to speak up, but there are people who need to hear what you have to say. You're afraid to make a move, but God says, trust me. So, friends, Nineveh is calling you today. What are you going to do about it? God wants you in Nineveh, but you don't want to go. You'd rather go to Tarshish. Okay, fine, but watch out for that big fish. The world is evil and mean. Will you speak up anyway? People are cruel. Will you tell them about God's love? Now, you say, I don't want to go. God says, okay, I think I can make you willing to go. Now, at this point, I'm reminded of that commercial about a car that breaks down and the voiceover says, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. The point being that prevention costs less than repair work. In a sense, that's what God is saying in the book of Jonah. We can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. But we're going to do this because God has a great big heart. He will not sit by silently while his children disobey him. You may say, where is the gospel in this story? Well, I answer that the gospel is all over this story. That's why no sign will be given other than the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. And there's no greater than Jonah. That's Luke eleven thirty-two, Where God so loved Nineveh that he gave his only son that whoever in Nineveh believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. Thomas Carlyle wrote a poem called You, Jonah. And the last two stanzas go this way. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Father, expand our vision to see the world as you see it. Please make us less like Jonah and more like Jesus. Grant us a fresh concern for those we meet. Renew in us a compassion for those who by nature would be repulsive to us. Lord, do some divine heart surgery and replace our anger, fear, and hesitation with your love. And may the Holy Spirit so fill us with true compassion in every part of our being. And give us your tears for all the Ninevehs around us. And give us hearts to go gladly with the good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission and feel the passion.